0: Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial medical benefit insurance for Shingrix Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted by visiting CoverageShingrix.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine. Thank you for joining me for the January 16, 2024 Annals Podcast and a quick look at the new articles that you'll find if you go to annals.org. Vaccines are very much on people's minds, as influenza, COVID, respiratory syncytial virus, and other respiratory illnesses make their way across the Northern Hemisphere. And there are several new articles about vaccination. First is the 2024 Recommended Adult Immunization Schedule from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. In addition to previously recommended adult vaccines, the 2024 schedule includes four new vaccines the respiratory syncytial virus or RSV vaccine, the MPOX vaccine, a new combo meningitis vaccine, and updated versions of the COVID vaccine with both an mRNA and a protein-based adjuvanted formulation. The majority of U.S. adults are not up to date on recommended vaccines, making it important for both clinicians and the public to be aware of the safe and effective vaccines that can protect both personal and community health. The recommendations are organized into five separate sections to help physicians find information quickly. Table 1 provides a list of recommended vaccinations by age. Table 2 outlines additional recommended vaccinations by medical condition or other indication. The notes section highlights vaccine types, dosing frequencies, and intervals, and considerations for special situations. The appendix warns of contraindications and precautions for each recommended vaccine, and the addendum explains new or updated guidance. The recommendations are an important reference document for physicians who are struggling to increase vaccination rates in clinical practice. Currently, only 40% of adults have received an influenza vaccine, and rates for the COVID-19 and RSV vaccines are low at 17.2% and 15.9%, respectively. According to the authors in an accompanying editorial, too many adults are lost to misinformation and distrust of public health in addition to the concept of medical freedom promoted by vaccine skeptics. The editorials urge the CDC and clinicians to develop more effective ways to communicate important vaccine messages to patients. While the CDC recommends COVID vaccination for everyone six months of age or older, there is substantial hesitancy regarding COVID vaccination for children and adolescents. Next is a real-world study that shows that among children and adolescents, the VNT-162B2 bivalent vaccine proved to be highly effective against COVID-19 during the Delta period. There was a moderate decline in effectiveness against the Omicron variant after four months, but the vaccine still provided significant protection against severe outcomes, including hospital admissions. Studies of vaccine effectiveness during real-world use are important to determine how the effectiveness observed in carefully controlled trials compares to what happens in the messy, uncontrolled world of actual clinical practice. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania used electronic health record data from a national network of U.S. pediatric medical centers to assess the real-world effectiveness of BNT162b2 among children and adolescents during the periods when the Delta and Omicron variants of SARS-CoV-2 were prominent. The researchers found that during the Delta variant period, the vaccine showed an estimated effectiveness of 98.4% against getting infected with COVID-19 among adolescents. The effectiveness didn't significantly decrease after receiving the first vaccine dose. During the Omicron variant period, the effectiveness against documented infection among children dropped to 74.3%. However, the vaccine seemed to provide significant protection against more severe infection and hospital admission due to COVID-19. Among adolescents, the effectiveness against Omicron infection was 85.5%, with higher effectiveness against more severe outcomes. The effectiveness of the vaccine against the Omicron variant declined four months after the first dose but then stabilized. The analysis did not find an increased risk of heart-related complications after vaccination, a safety concern that has contributed to vaccine hesitancy. And the third article related to vaccination is another real-world study, this time of the recombinant zoster vaccine. The incidence and severity of shingles increases markedly with age and immunocompromising conditions. A two-dose series of the recombinant zoster vaccine has been shown to be very effective in clinical trials, but the long-term effectiveness has not been extensively studied in real-world settings. Researchers from Kaiser Permanente Northern California studied data from the Vaccine Safety Data Link to evaluate the real-world effectiveness of the recombinant zoster vaccine against acquiring shingles. The outcome was incident shingles defined by a diagnosis with an antiviral prescription. The researchers used a Cox regression model to compare the risks of getting shingles in people who were vaccinated versus those who were not. Other factors that could affect the risks, such as age or other health conditions, were accounted for in the model. The researchers found that the vaccine provided a high level of protection that didn't decrease much over four years. Among people taking corticosteroid, the vaccine still showed substantial effectiveness. According to the authors, this is important because people on corticosteroids are at higher risk of getting shingles. The study also revealed that the effectiveness of just one dose of the vaccine decreased after one year, supporting the current recommendation for people to get a second dose. These findings support the existing guideline recommending a two-dose regimen for optimal protection. Moving on from vaccination, the next article examines the emerging practice of delivering acute hospital-level care at home. Hospitalization is a standard of care for some acute illness, but hospital care is often expensive, unsafe, and unpleasant for patients. Prior research has shown that compared with traditional inpatient hospital care, patients cared for in a hospital-at-home setting have improved experiences and physical activity levels with lower rates of mortality, readmission, and discharge to skilled nursing facilities. In November 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued the Acute Hospital-at-Home Waiver creating a regulatory and payment pathway for hospitals to deliver acute hospital care at home. However, this waiver is set to expire in December 2024. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School analyzed data for 5,132 patients receiving hospital care at home between July 2022 and June 2023. Of the patients studied, 42.5% had heart failure, 43.3% had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, 22.1% had cancer, and 16.1% had dementia. Acute hospital care at home was associated with low rates of mortality, escalation, skilled nursing facility use, and readmission. According to the authors, the data provide preliminary evidence on national uptake and suggest that acute hospital care at home is an important care model to manage acute illness, including among socially vulnerable and medically complex patients. These data should help inform ongoing policy discussions. North American and European health agencies recently warned of severe breathing problems associated with gabapentinoids, including in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The supporting evidence was limited. The next article reports a population-based cohort study of more than 10,000 persons using gabapentinoids that found that their use was associated with an increased risk of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation. The study supports the warnings from regulatory agencies and highlights the importance of considering this potential risk when prescribing gabapentin and pregabalin to patients with COPD. Researchers from McGill University and Lady Davis Institute for Medical Research studied insurance data for 356 gabapentinoid users with epilepsy, 9,411 with neuropathic pain, and 3,737 with other chronic pain. The gabapentinoid users were matched one-to-one to to non-users on COPD duration, indication for gabapentinoid use, age, sex, calendar year, and time conditional propensity score. The authors found that compared with non-use, gabapentinoid use was associated with increased risk for severe COPD exacerbation among users taking these drugs for epilepsy, neuropathic pain, and chronic pain, and peak increase in risk for severe COPD exacerbation occurred after approximately six months of continued use. Among patients with neuropathic pain and other chronic pain, The risk was observed regardless of age, sex, number of prior COPD exacerbations, prior use of inhaled corticosteroids, number of respiratory medications used, or opioids or benzodiazepine use. According to the authors, physicians should consider these potential risks before prescribing gabapentin and pregabalin to patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Insomnia is especially common in persons on long-term dialysis, with about 50% having chronic insomnia. Because insomnia is associated with exacerbated fatigue, depression, pain perception, and poor quality of life, patients place a high priority on finding effective treatments for this condition. Cognitive behavioral therapy and trazodone are commonly used interventions to treat insomnia in the general population but it is unclear that the evidence for safety and efficacy of insomnia treatments in the general population can be extrapolated to persons undergoing long-term dialysis. So in the study reported in the next article, researchers from the University of Washington randomly assigned 126 persons undergoing hemodialysis and experiencing chronic insomnia to six weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy, trazodone, or placebo to compare the effectiveness of the interventions. Participants were assessed for severity of insomnia at 7 and 25 weeks using the Insomnia Severity Index. The authors found that scores were the same for patients regardless of the intervention used, but serious adverse events occurred more frequently in participants using Trazodone. According to the authors, given the high burden of insomnia in dialysis patients and the high priority placed on patients for symptom relief, more trials are needed to investigate additional therapies for this condition. An accompanying editorial highlights how the different causes of insomnia impact its treatment. The editorialist notes that the lack of efficacy observed in cognitive behavioral therapy in this study is remarkable, given the extremely strong evidence base for its utility in primary insomnia, suggesting that the typical psychophysiological drivers of insomnia in the general population may be less pertinent in hemodialysis patients where restless leg syndrome and neuropathic pain may be important contributors to difficulties with sleep. Also at Analyst.org is the new in-the-clinic review on osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is common. However, management of osteoporosis and fracture prevention strategies are often not addressed by primary care clinicians, even in older patients with recent fractures. The review discusses evidence-based screening strategies to improve identification of patients who are most likely to benefit from drug treatment to prevent fracture indications for pharmacotherapy, and guidance regarding choice of medication and duration of treatment to maximize benefits of fracture prevention while minimizing potential harms of long-term drug exposure. Also available on annals.org is the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. The topic is COVID-19 rebound after antiviral therapy. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org for some of the new material I've mentioned here. As always, there are opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do, and I hope you will return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial medical benefit insurance for Shingrix Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted by visiting CoverageShingrix.com.